And welcome to Louisiana Considered. On a Wednesday, I'm Adam Voss. Coming up on the program, a grand jury indicted five law enforcement officers involved in a 2019 death of Ronald Green in police custody. Paul Braun will have more on the reaction of the people involved in that case. Also, the National Film Registry has added to its archives some footage of a crew of Rex Mardi Gras Parade in 1898. We'll explore that little bit of history, that relic, previously presumed to be long lost. That's all coming up on the program. But first, in recent years, thousands of Cameroonians have come to the U.S. seeking protection from brutal conflict. At least 200 ended up in Louisiana immigration courts, where judges were less likely to grant asylum. As they languished in detention under threat of deportation, many say they were treated poorly and even tortured behind bars. For Type Investigations and the Gulf States Newsroom, Bobby Jean Missick tells the stories of two men and their years-long search for protection. From the moment he went on the run, fleeing military police in Cameroon, BJ has been searching for safety. When he arrived in the U.S. in 2019, he thought he'd found it when he was allowed to cross the border. Going inside with tears, knowing that I'm going to be safe. We're using a pseudonym because he fears for his family's safety. For nearly a year and a half, BJ was stuck behind bars, inside detention centers in Mississippi and Louisiana, not knowing if or when he'd be sent back. And it's not easy to get out. The Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office that manages the region denied almost every parole request it received in 2018 and 2019. They were not releasing people, Mm -hmm. so we're just there. Just there, in an area where the majority of detention centers are run by for-profit private prison companies. They treat immigrants like um, worse than prisoners. That's Fabrice Bidpua. He was a student in Cameroon before he fled to the U.S. He's talking about Pine Prairie Ice Processing Center in Louisiana, where he was held for more than a year and a half. He says the dorm where he and other black immigrants slept was crowded and that sometimes they'd be left in a dorm room without A.C. Water all over the floor from sweat. We need to keep cleaning over and over like six times a day. Some were detained for so long that they filed federal petitions for relief. Basically, a last resort to get released from punitive indefinite detention. Type Investigations and the Gulf States Newsroom analyzed those petitions and found that most of the Cameroonians who filed had been detained for more than a year. One man was held for more than three years. In Pine Prairie, Bidpua and other Africans, mostly from Cameroon, staged a hunger strike. They were fed up with what they saw as racist treatment, poor conditions, and sweeping parole denials. The facility's parent company, Geo Group, said they, quote, strongly rejected these allegations. Across the state line at Adams County Correctional Center in Mississippi, BJ had been refusing to sign or fingerprint his deportation documents. He says he thought that would keep him from being sent back to Cameroon. Detention seemed safer than going home. I preferred to stay at Adams, mm-hmm. even for the rest of my life, because I know what will happen if I go back over there to Cameroon. I'm going to die either. 
Then, in September of 2020, he says officers used force against him. According to a complaint from immigrants' rights groups filed with the Department of Homeland Security, staff at Adams allegedly used pepper spray and excessive force, including chokeholds, to pressure BJ and several other Cameroonians to fingerprint or sign their deportation documents. I was so confused because, you know, I didn't commit any crime. I was just like, I don't want to use my fingerprint because I don't want to go back. That was all. A representative from Core Civic, the detention center's parent company, denied some allegations made in the complaint, but not the use of force. The company alleges that three detainees assaulted staff members and had to be subdued. Both BJ and Bidpua spent roughly a year and a half in detention, with no idea of when they would be deported or released. They got out after Biden took office and pushed for the release of low-threat detainees. Bidpua is in Maryland. He's studying database administration. BJ is in Texas. He's working as a carpenter. And this spring, they got another glimmer of hope. Hi. Hey, Bobby. <laughs> Look at <laughs> I'm going crazy already, Bobby. On this morning, April 15th, the Biden administration announced it was granting temporary protected status to Cameroonians in the U.S. Today is the happiest day of my life. After years of legal limbo, TPS was a formal recognition that the ongoing armed conflict and humanitarian crisis in Cameroon made it too dangerous for many to return home. An estimated 40,000 Cameroonians are eligible to apply for the relief, which would It's big news. TPS allows them to work and live here without any threat of deportation for at least 18 months. Bidpua says he's grateful to the U.S. government for granting Cameroonians temporary protected status. But it is just temporary. And after it's lifted... Where am I going to? Who do I know? I cannot go back to my country. And that temporary protection does not offer a separate path to citizenship. So the good news is bittersweet for BJ and his family. There's still no legal way for BJ to apply for them to join him in the U.S. But when he told his wife about it... She was so, so happy. And then she started crying. <laughs> I talked to her and the kids, too. My boy, he's always like, Daddy, when are you coming to take me? <laughs> uh, you know, each time... He asked me that question, I feel so bad. Which question? Daddy, when are you coming to take me? He's happy to be safe and alive in the U.S. Free from detention with temporary protection, he now has a new focus. Being there for his wife and kids. That means his journey isn't over. For the Gulf States Newsroom and Type Investigations, I'm Bobby Jean Mizick. 
And the story is the final part of a series produced by the Gulf States Newsroom in partnership with Type Investigations. To check out the full series about Cameroonian asylum seekers in the Gulf South, you can visit either of our websites, www.wino.org or wrkf.org. This is Louisiana Considered. This is Louisiana Considered on WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans. Last week, a grand jury in North Louisiana brought criminal charges against five officers in a case involving a black man who died in police custody in 2019. And the charges come more than a year after body cam footage of the arrest surfaced. It showed the state troopers engaged in a brutal beating. Paul Braun, Capital Access reporter for WRKF, has that story. The official explanation for her son's death, injuries in a car crash, was never believable to Mona Hardin. Though she was pleased that the actual brutal circumstances in which he died are now clear, Hardin says the indictments the grand jury handed down on Thursday don't go far enough. There needs to be substantial time for a cop who murders while in uniform. Because if not, you're condoning the killing of Ronald Green. You're okay with my son being murdered if you just give a slap on the wrist. Trooper Corey York faces the most serious charges, negligent homicide and 10 counts of malfeasance in office for his role in the deadly beating. Uh, No, it's woefully insufficient. The entire world had the opportunity to see uh, a brutal killing on tape and to hear- That's Alana Odoms of the ACLU of Louisiana. The four other officers face a number of lesser charges, including malfeasance and obstruction of justice. You know, you really wonder what people could need, what more a juror or a grand juror could need to see in order to actually hold folks accountable for that kind of brutality. Two troopers are still employed with the agency, but on leave. This case is one of several that set off a larger investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice. The agency is looking at the Louisiana State Police's broader discriminatory patterns around traffic stops and use of force. Green's family is still pursuing a civil suit. Here's his mother, Mona Hardin. All I can say is this is the beginning of a lot. We're not done. We're not done by a long shot. Hardin says her son was cremated without her permission, and she's waiting until justice is served to properly lay him to rest. For NPR News, I'm Paul Braun in Baton Rouge. The grand jury began hearing evidence in November in that case of that brutal 2019 traffic stop and was troopers were seen stunning and striking Green during his arrest. That grand jury was only tasked with determining whether state charges would be brought. Any decisions regarding a trial or a verdict are yet to come. This is Louisiana Considered. Last week, the Library of Congress announced that the short silent film titled Mardi Gras Carnival has been added to the National Film Registry. The film, which captures about two minutes of the crew of Rex rolling through New Orleans in 1898, is this year's oldest inductee. But this film was actually long thought to be lost. That was until Mackenzie Roberts Beasley, an audiovisual researcher and archivist for the Smithsonian Archives of American Art, tracked it down earlier this year in a trail that led her all the way to Europe. She joins us now to share more about this film, the piece of history it exposes, and the unlikely journey to recovering it. Thanks for being here. Of course. 
So, Mackenzie, this film was lost. It was thought to be lost for a long time, but there were still rumors swirling around about its existence. So it may not have been a complete surprise that it was found, and you had a clue that it existed or might have existed somewhere. How did you first get involved in this project, and how were you able to track it down? And why did you know that this is film that might exist? Sure. Um, so Will French, who is the historian of the Rex crew, he called me and said, hey, I wondered if you could help me. And he said, I'm looking for a bunch of films of New Orleans, specifically Rex, Mardi Gras, but we don't know if they exist or not. We've had other people try and they've been unable to find them. And there's a reason for that. I mean, statistically, they think 80 to 90% of the silent era is lost. It kind of depends on who you ask. Hmm. A lot of people didn't think the films were important, so they didn't keep them. What's interesting is that they've created this database and the database is based on inventory roles of different companies and the films that they produced. And so we know that these films have been made, but we have no idea if they're still around. And that's kind of how he was able to say, I think that these are the titles and these are the films that we're looking for. And granted, not all of the titles are very descriptive, as you can imagine. So you kind of take a shot in the dark. Things are pretty generic when they would name them. So these films were listed out and there was a few companies that did them. Um, this one was done by the American Mutoscope, which is an early film production company. So I found the list and they happen to have one at the Eye Museum in the Netherlands. So if you look on the production information, there should be two rolls of film and under the Eye Museum, it just said the film title. So I had no idea if it was one reel, two reels, what to do. So I reached out and asked them about it and they said that they need to digitize it, but they'd get back to me when it was done. And that's when I saw it and thought, oh my God, I know what this is. This has to be what they're looking for. This is Rex. So somebody was recording this film in New Orleans in 1898. Why were they there? Why were they recording this? What was the reason? What was the intended audience? So uh, around the time that film came out, this is pretty early on, 1898, they made actuality films. And actuality films were done in New York and all across the United States of what places looked like. And it really was just the idea of a moving image. They didn't really care so much about story, which is why you also have just footage of New York City or San Francisco before the earthquake, things like that. And those were the films that you would see either being projected or you would see them in the Nickelodeons. And this was one of them. So the reason they're recording is, you know, people just liked watching actualities from somewhere else in the world because it's the, it's a moving image. It's a, it's a novel thing. Yeah, and not everybody got to travel. So you might hear of what New Orleans is doing with Mardi Gras and you might hear that, it's, you know, things are going on on the coast. And um, I remember reading about the World's Fair that was pretty early on and they had footage of different factories from the big city. So people in the rural era may not have been able to see what factories looked like at the time. So that was a, a big reason why they had actualities, which is really cool. Um, people kind of overlook that now. So this hunt for this film brought you to Amsterdam. Why was the film there? And how were you able to get this footage back to the U.S.? So our best guess is that films were distributed all over to watch, but no studio really asked for them back. So this would end up in people's garages or attics or backyard, like kind of wherever they had them, and then ended up in archives. People would have them and keep them and go, hey, I'll donate these. And it happened that one of the American Mutoscope films ended up in the Netherlands. So they just digitized it for me. Um, it's a 1989 film, which means that it's probably on nitrate, and the nitrate is highly flammable. So at no point would I have even asked for it. <laughs> 
Um, but they were able to digitize it, and I'm guessing they have special equipment for that because there's very few places that can do it. Hmm. So films like this, they're you know temperamental when archivists keep them. They're kept in these climate-controlled conditions to keep them from breaking down. And you said some of these are found in your garages and attics. What condition was this film in when it was found? And was there a restoration effort? Were you were you lucky? I don't know a whole lot about the film itself, but by looking at the footage, it is well-maintained. You don't see very many scratches, and it doesn't seem to be that there's a lot of warping involved either. We're speaking with Mackenzie Roberts Beasley, audiovisual researcher and archivist with the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. We're speaking about some very old footage of the crew of Rex Parade rolling through New Orleans in 1898, footage that was recently uncovered and inducted into the National Film Registry. So tell us a little bit more about the film itself. What are we seeing when we watch it? Who's in it? What's going on? Yeah, so this was the Rex Parade, and it's going down... Oh, God, I don't remember the street right now. So I understand the camera that was filming was placed at Gallier Hall and was looking down St. Charles Avenue toward Poydras Street. I ended up actually staying over there in a hotel. Um, it's a little different now, but we were able to figure out which one it was. What's interesting about this footage is you'll notice that Mardi Gras changed. <laughs> there's no beads being thrown. There's no people screaming. There's no, nothing being thrown. And what's another interesting thing to think about is there's no safety really involved. Uh, there's no handrails. There's nothing really holding you on. You're just kind of standing on top of these floats. To me, it's a little scary. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> want to do that. But that's another thing that's really fascinating. And you're also not seeing any police presence holding people back. Everybody is standing where they're supposed to be and the floats are coming down. There's no barricades like there is nowadays. Um, but the big thing that's happening in this footage that's really neat is the Bouffe Gras. So Bouffe Gras is a bull that's always been part of the Rex crew. It's a, a live bull that was paraded around medieval France. Then at one point it was killed and eaten before Lent. And this is a tradition that was then integrated into the Mardi Gras parade. And a live bull used to stand on a float that would go down the street. Nowadays, it's paper mache. And that ended in 1901, having a live bull. So this is a live bull. And that's a really incredible footage to see. It's the only footage like that in the world. The Bouffe Gras. So this is a live bull um, on a float going down the street in New Orleans. Yes. <laughs> and I have no idea how they got it up there. <laughs> <laughs> or how it got back down. Oh, God, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that stands out here, of course, this crowd sounds very well behaved. Nobody has to keep them back off the street. They're not mobbing the floats or anything. No safety whatsoever compared to what we're used to now. The other thing, nobody's throwing anything. We think of throws as a staple of Mardi Gras parades, but apparently it wasn't in 1898. Mackenzie, I'm wondering... What were your biggest takeaways from watching this film? We saw a quote from Will French. He said, watching the film is like a hunt for 100 little Easter eggs because each viewing reveals something new. Do you get that feeling from it? Were there any little Easter eggs that you discovered viewing this footage over and over again? Yeah, I guess because I've done Mardi Gras with my family and I don't think of it in the same way that I do in the footage because it's just so different from today. But then my knowledge of film and film history and what we're looking at for I guess, historical presidents, it's not surprising that it's extremely different. Um, having gone back to New Orleans and I stood in the area where the float was coming down the street, I know that the buildings behind it have changed. And it's just really neat to see, I don't know how to explain it, um, the change of America in a way. And the change of Mardi Gras is just incredible to watch. And to know the difference, 
we now have footage of something so old and now you can experience this today and know how far we've come not only in safety but also in costumes and interaction i feel like you're not really interacting so much here in the older footage but nowadays it's a more interactive experience for Mardi Gras. this is film you know 100 20 some years ago, and it's bound to be some part of the history of New Orleans and Mardi Gras. Tell me, what's been the reaction about the discovery of this film? What have people said to you, and how has the city of New Orleans responded? So it's been a very positive response. Um, I've gotten emails from colleagues and friends who were all really excited that the footage was found. But really, the big hurrah of everything was that it was brought into the National Film Registry. It's an incredible honor. And to have footage of my home state be honored in such a way is an incredible gift. And I'm so glad that I was able to help. And you mentioned a little bit of your reaction to being in the exact same location this film was shot of, the same corner, the same scene, and seeing what had changed. I don't know if anything was the same. Can you tell me like what you noticed changed? So I know looking in the back of the footage, you'll see the balconies on the building. That's no longer there. It was a little bit more difficult to figure out where it was for a long time. And the parade route is different than it was then. So it no longer goes on the street any longer. We've been speaking with Mackenzie Roberts Beasley, an audiovisual researcher and archivist for the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. Mackenzie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. And just so you know, for afternoon listeners in New Orleans, uh, that two-minute snippet we've been talking about will be screened today at 6 p.m. at the Presbytery overlooking Jackson Square. It will be followed by a discussion and will be free and open to the public. This is Louisiana Considered. And now it's time for Where You Eat with New Orleans food writer Ian McNulty. New Orleans food is the gift we give ourselves and one we share with others. So right now, in the season of gift giving, I want to recognize the key ingredient that's never up for awards or included in all those roundups and best of lists. After another year of trying to follow the ever-changing story of food and restaurants in this community, I am once again awed by the perseverance, the personality, the heart that flows through it all, thanks to New Orleans people. Now, New Orleans food is a tale told with the garlic and cayenne of a seafood boil, the crunch and crumb of po'boy loaves, the gush of fat oysters, and the burnished hue of a dark roux. But it goes beyond flavors. It is New Orleans people and the connection through a lifestyle that revolves around food. New Orleanians are not just an audience or a customer base. We are active participants, analysts, historians, and ambassadors for a richer idea of a shared food culture. It shows in how we relate to each other and weave family stories around our food and our restaurants. It's part of our civic pride, and it's a way to celebrate our own blessings and respond to the setbacks and losses and grief that life brings us. It's the New Orleans people who safeguard our food heritage and also step up for its future. It's the people who bring fresh energy from their own traditions, whether transplanted or evolved. It's those who innovate to meet changing needs and grasp new opportunities. It's my privilege to learn and share these stories, and near the end of another year, I'm carrying so many of them with me. Great food can stick with you. My waistline is a testament to that. But in a community like ours, where the connections between people and place and the passage of time is right there on our plates, it lives in your heart too. 
And that was New Orleans food writer Ian McNulty. That's been Louisiana Considered this Wednesday. Tomorrow on Louisiana Considered, New Orleans Metro reporter Carly Berlin will visit a funeral home on Claiborne Avenue in New Orleans to talk with neighborhood residents about plans to redesign the area. And on Friday, in honor of the 150th anniversary of PBS Pinchback becoming governor of Louisiana, our producer, Alana Schreiber, will speak with a historian and editor of the book, The Louisiana Governors, from Iberville to Edwards. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health. This is 80-